Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Over a 22-year academic career at the University of California, Davis, Carol Meredith changed the world of wine forever. Using genetic markers and DNA fingerprinting, she helped to identify the parents of grapes such as Cabernet Sauvignon and Syrah, as well as solving the mystery of Zinfandel's origins. Now retired, she spoke to me from the celebrated Mount Vida vineyard that she owns with her husband, Steve Legier. Hello, Carol. How are you? Hi, Tim. I'm doing very well, thanks. Um, nice to see you early in the morning where you are, a bit later in the day here. Uh, you're, you're presumably at the winery, aren't you? Uh, well, I'm at the vineyard. We don't have a winery on our property. We've uh, never been able to afford one, but we we have our vineyard here and uh, and our house. And we've been here now for 30 Almost 37 years, I think. Long time. And it's one of the most beautiful places in California, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I could see why you've stayed. Absolutely. Absolutely. But you weren't born in California. I think you may be the first person I've interviewed on the podcast who was born in Wales, right? I just, yes, how did yes. your family end up in California? Uh, well, my father, my father worked for a, a, a British window company. And my father was a salesman type of guy, and uh, the window company wanted to open a branch in Ontario, Canada, that's in the eastern part of Canada, and offered my dad the opportunity to go and open that branch and be the sales manager. So he jumped at it because he thought that, um, that Great Britain was way too socialistic for his taste. He, he always used to joke you had to fill out six forms to buy a piece of plywood. So he he was happy to to leave the UK, and so we moved to Eastern Canada. I actually sailed on a ship. Wow! Sailed on a ship, and I at one point I was digging around on the internet, and I found the passenger list for the ship, and I was on it. It was amazing. So <laughs> so then uh, yeah, we moved to Canada. My father had gone ahead by a few weeks, and so it was my mother and my younger brother and me. We moved to Canada. We stayed there for uh, Eastern Canada for a couple of years. And then my dad was offered the opportunity to go to Vancouver on the west coast of Canada and open yet another branch of the same company. So we moved all the way across to Vancouver, where it rained nearly every day. And my mother was just miserable. I mean, she had a bad case of seasonal affective disorder. And so she was just she was just a mess most of the time. And then after a few more years, uh, my father got yet another opportunity to move to California. Movie stars, sunshine, (laughs) palm trees, right? So so, uh, we moved in 1959. uh, We moved to the San Francisco Bay Area. And my father started up yet another branch of the same company. And my mother said, thank God you've brought me to someplace that's livable. And and she meant it. She really meant it. And uh, they were quite concerned that he might get moved yet again with this company. And so my dad decided to leave that company and at that point uh, started his own window company. 
And so that's so we settled in uh, the suburbs of the San Francisco area, and, uh, and and that's where we stayed. And you've been there ever since, pretty much, apart from a little bit of time in Michigan, yeah? Yes, exactly. Yes, that's right. Tell me when you first became interested in, in plants. I mean, were you an outdoors kind of kid? I mean, presumably a bit harder to be an outdoors kind of kid in Ontario. It's cold for in the winter, isn't it? But once you got to California, was that where it started? No, I was I was never an outdoors kid, and I'm still not an outdoors kid. Um, I got interested in plants in, well, I was always interested in science. Hmm. Uh, the first book I remember buying or at least asking for for Christmas was the Golden Book of Astronomy. I was very interested in science, didn't know where it was going. But by, by the time I got to high school, uh, I began to focus on plants. I had a high school biology teacher who was interested in the local native plants, and he would take us outside and into the the wild land surrounding the high school and teach us about the plants. And that really clicked for me. So that that for me was was plants. And Latin names or not? Things like no, that? Or no, no, just common names. Just yeah. just common names. And then uh but then when I got to college, at that point I thought I wanted to become a doctor. Hmm. Um, because I was still interested in science. But uh then I had another I had a professor at college who was a plant biologist and she actually became the first role model for me because I had never really thought about possible career paths in science. I always thought if you were interested in in biology, you became a doctor. What else was there? You know, I mean, I, I, I didn't know about careers in science, but then I saw this female botany professor and a light bulb really went off. I thought, wow, you can have a career in science without being a doctor. And so that's when I, I really began to see uh, a path in plants. But I was in college in the 60s, and we all had many other distractions at the time. And, uh, and so I, I really wasn't focused on classwork at all. And I used to spend a lot of my time either playing bridge or smoking marijuana and listening to music and, you know, at the same time or not all at the all at the same time yeah and so i really wasn't that interested in school and that's when as i think you may know i changed my major from biology to art because uh i i really thought i'd rather do macrame than uh than study biology and at about the same time my brother paul who was four years younger and was very much of a a rebel musician and did not get along with my father very well at all because of that. He had long hair and played music. So my brother, uh, he, he thought that he and I should move up to the Redwoods on the Mendocino coast and he would make music and I would do macro macrame. And of course we'd have no trouble making a living that way. Right. So, <laughs> so for a while that was what we really thought we might do, but that, that didn't last for long. And I eventually, um, I eventually came back to science. But you did make a green rubber telephone, then, didn't you? I did. That was when I was an art major. Yes, I really loved sculpture. Oh. And I, I learned how to weld. And I welded, like, clutch plates together. And I, I made one huge contraption that took up took up half a room that was made up of clutch plates and springs. <laughs> and you, you touch it in one corner, and the whole thing would start bouncing. So that was a lot of fun. And then I also, this was in the Vietnam War era, I also made a small merry-go-round 
on which all the, it, it was not animals that were on the carousel. It was army jeeps and they were all going backwards <laughs> and they, and they all had babies riding in them. And I, I had a motor and everything. And uh, that was actually quite popular. It sounds pretty creative though. I mean, yeah. it, it, it was, yeah. yeah. But, uh, but mostly I made telephones. I, I made telephones out of uh, cast aluminum. Uh, one of them had a face on it. But then I did make this uh, rather large one out of lime green foam rubber. And the, the idea of the, the assignment in the art class was that we should make something and then give it up. Not, you know, don't get too attached to your own work. That's very and sexist. So we, yeah. we were all supposed to make something that could float. And then everybody in the class, we went down to the creek that was uh, on the campus and we launched our creations down the there creek. There you go. That's the last <laughs> never time saw I, it again. Never saw it again. Don't even have a photograph. It's interesting there because you've said, you know, your your early academic career was not particularly stellar, as you put it, at, at an undergraduate level. You worked in a retail nursery and then you were uh, uh, accepted onto the graduate program in genetics Yeah, back at UCD, UC Davis. And you completed your PhD in, what, 1977 under Professor Charles Rick. I just yeah. wonder how, how important was he as a mentor? Well, he was important in a way. The first way that he was important was that he was a, a highly respected scientist. Mm. And the thought that I could even work with him was, at first, I, I didn't think it was even going to be possible. I had met, I met a guy in one of my first classes as a graduate student. And at the time, I was in a different department. I was going to get a master's degree and, and become a flower breeder. I really liked flowers. But then I, I met a, a student who was also starting at the same time. His name uh, is John Phobes. We're still in touch. And he had been an outstanding undergraduate student in Pennsylvania, and he had been groomed for a PhD program, and he had been uh, kind of sent by his Pennsylvania professors to Davis to work with Professor Charles Rick. And that was totally foreign to me, the fact that you would actually aim for a particular laboratory to work in. And I didn't know any of this. And so John became a very good friend and, and a guide. And so I thought, well, if John's working with Charles Rick, and, and this is a, you know, a highly sought after thing, maybe I could do it too. And so uh, using John as a role model, and so I went to Professor Rick. Well, we, he and I were taking a course from Professor Rick at the time, and I was doing well in the class. And I went to Professor Rick, and I said, do you think I might be able to switch from a master's program into a PhD program in genetics and come and work in your laboratory? And he said, well, I don't think so. We don't have any funding. So that was a brush off, you know, because he didn't know who I was, except that I was doing well in his class. So then I went to the financial aid office and tried to find out how I could get my own funding. And I did. I got some funding. I got a scholarship and I got some work study money. And I went back to Professor Rick and I said, I've got I've got some funding. Do you think I could work in your laboratory? And he said, oh. Well, I think we can find funding for you. So I, I guess he was impressed that I had taken you, the initiative. You had to get a bit of get you know, bit of get up and go. And so he let me in. Yeah. So he, he was he was my first experience with how you could be illustrious, you know, how you could be a scientist 
even working on an agricultural crop, and be esteemed and illustrious. He was a member of the National Academy of Sciences, and that was really my first introduction to somebody of that uh, level. Yeah, the academic pyramid. Yeah. You know, yeah. How, yeah, yeah. what is status in academia? Yeah. I mean, you know, after that, you did a two-year spell as a research scientist with a biotech company, yeah. and then you kind of had enough of that because you decided that science should benefit humanity, which I think is very noble principled. So you went back to Davis, didn't you, as as in the Department of Viticulture and Enology as assistant professor, right, in, yeah. in, in 1980. I mean, were you already interested in, in grapevines by then? I just wondered how advanced was the field of genetics at the time? Was that kind of beginning? I was not interested in grapevines. I had done my my graduate work with Professor Rick was on tomatoes, so that was he was the world's preeminent tomato geneticist, and he was a he was one of those uh, classical plant explorers where he would go on expeditions down to Peru and Ecuador, where, like where Darwin. Yeah, yeah. it's the ancestral home of tomato, and he would find all these interesting wild forms and bring them back and study what they had to offer. And, and, you know, he had a huge, vast collection anyway. So I was tomatoes all the way. And then, uh, and I had worked a little bit uh, when I went to Michigan state university for a year, I worked a little bit on uh, tobacco and a few other model systems. And then at the biotech company, I worked on corn and cotton and soybean I had never worked on grape at all, and I would have gone to Davis for any position on any crop. What I wanted to do was to get back to a university setting, and I wanted to work in agriculture, and I wanted to do something to benefit. Uh, I was idealistic, uh, as are most of us at that age. I, I wanted to do something that would benefit agriculture and would benefit humanity in the greater way, whereas working at a private company, you're just benefiting wasn't, that wasn't company's yeah. bottom line. So I, I started asking around at UC Davis because I didn't want to leave California, and Davis was really the best place to do genetics on crop plants. Uh, and so okay. I asked around about what positions might be opening up in the near future, and there were a lot of retirements on the horizon. People like uh, people who had been hired at the close of World War II, you know, late 40s, early 50s, they were on the brink of retirement. And so there were half a dozen positions coming open. Right. And the timing was such that I applied for the grape job. And, and you got, and it. I got it. Yeah. So that was it. I had to learn fast. And, and, and you know, genetics was just beginning for grapevines, was it, at the time? Well, uh, modern biotechnology was just getting going. Grapevine genetics had been going since the 1800s. I mean, there were there were great breeders in the late 1800s. For example, a variety like Alicante Boucher, you know, which is a Tinturier variety that was created in the late 1800s as a deliberate cross. Yeah. And all the uh, a lot of the rootstocks that were used in Europe uh, when when phylloxera uh, rampaged through there, a lot of those were created by classical plant breeders who would select parents and make crosses and marry them. But yeah. it would take forever because grape is a, a woody perennial plant with a long juvenile phase. Yeah. So when you make a cross and collect some seeds and plant the seeds out, it takes years and years before they're old enough that you can actually evaluate their traits and see whether you've got anything. So the advantage of biotechnology was that it promised to accelerate that. Uh, As see. it turns out, yeah. it, it wasn't such a simple pursuit, but that was the promise. And when I was hired, that was the hope that mm. they really hoped that I would bring 
to bear on the, the, the current problems. I would bring to bear these modern techniques and really speed things up because my predecessor had been at it for 40 years and it, you know, work had gone very slowly. And, and when did you start to build this database of genetic markers in grapes? That was quite a while later. That was probably not until I had been at it for about 10 years. Uh, I began to lose interest in the, the biotechnology that I was interested in at the outset, and that was expected of me, was that I would do genetic engineering. You know, I would find useful genes, uh, usually in other species, and bring, bring, put them into grape and create grapes that, that, that address various problems, pest and disease problems, uh, environmental stresses possibly some quality problems, uh, compositional issues. But that was going very, very slowly because grape, grape turned out to be rather recalcitrant to these efforts. Uh, it was not like, uh, you know, tobacco and all the annual crops, tobacco, tomato, a lot of those plants proved to be pretty easy to work with and you could really make great gains with them quite fast. But all of the woody perennial plants like grape and all the fruit trees, uh, they proved to be very, very difficult. And so progress was slow. I ended up spending some of my time continuing to work on a tobacco species that is a, a model system, like a, a white rat for plant biology, because I could get things done with it. Hmm. But and I got some publications, which were really important, but I wasn't making much headway with grape. And, and so when did the database start then? Because the, initially it was more the genetic engineering side of it, yeah? Right. So it, that started in the early 90s when uh, it, it what happened was that progress was being made in humans with with uh, DNA markers, and it became very clear that DNA markers were going to be extremely useful for understanding human genetics. And a graduate student who I had at the time, a PhD student named John Bowers, he and I attended a seminar in the medical school at uh, UC Davis, and it was about hypertension in... Um, I think it was hypertension in rats, but it was being used as a model for studying hypertension in humans. And they were using DNA markers to try to identify the genes that were uh, key to understanding hypertension. And we, we looked at that seminar and we realized that those markers were immediately, I mean, they were transferable to grape or to any species, really. The, the concept applies to any organism that, yeah. that has DNA. And so uh, we immediately began to think about how we could apply it to grape. And of course, people working in other plants were doing the same thing. All of these happen. They always happen when the time is right. You know, mm. it, 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 it's very rare to have somebody in science do something that nobody else had even imagined, yeah, because yeah. usually everybody's imagining it at the yeah, same at time. The same time. And, and what was your first really important discovery? Was it the parents of Cabernet Sauvignon or Syrah? With Cabernet first, wasn't it? was first, yes, and that was, uh, I have to give John Bowers credit for that, the same student uh, who went to the rat seminar with me. Uh, John Bowers, he, he was the one who really saw what we could do with these markers. We had already been, we had a few DNA markers in grape, and we had mostly been using them to try to confirm the identity of various varieties because as in all new world countries when 
when old world grapes move to new world countries, they sometimes lose their original names. Yeah. Because names names were historically variety names were never all that important. Yeah. It was the regional names that were more important, you know, the Bordeaux, the Burgundy, the Champagne. And, mm. and so there were at the time in California, around uh, the late 80s, early 90s, there were some issues with varieties being incorrectly identified. And it was rather embarrassing when a French expert would come and tromp around in a California vineyard and say, well, no, I'm sorry, that's not Gamay. You know? And so we, we wanted to develop a method to clarify the identity simply by by looking at the DNA profile of a California vine, comparing it to the DNA profile of an authentic European reference. Okay. And so we started to do that, and we were making some progress. But We had very few markers, but we had enough that we were making some progress. And we started to, as we started to analyze the important grapes in California to establish a little bit of a database of our own so that we didn't always have to rely upon European references, we were acquiring some data, and we had about 25 of the most common wine grape varieties in California in our database. And John John had a eureka moment. He was just looking at that data, and he, he just realized as he was looking at it that three of the varieties that were in our database, and that was Cabernet Sauvignon, Sauvignon Blanc, Cabernet Franc, when he looked at them, they all shared a lot of DNA markers. And he realized that this was exactly comparable to human paternity analysis. And he realized that Cabernet Sauvignon just had to be the offspring of those other two grapes. Of Cabernet Franc and Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah, exactly. With Sauvignon Blanc being the mother. And we, we didn't have very many markers at the time. And so in order to prove these things statistically, you have to prove, and this is especially true in humans, where a lot can be at stake. Uh, you have to prove not only that it's possible for these two to be the parents of the third, but that it's probable by looking at how common certain DNA markers are okay. in the yeah. overall population. And so we started then to realize we needed more and more markers, and we acquired some from other laboratories that were uh, everybody shares in science, everybody shares. And so we had enough markers that we could prove it statistically, but then we began to realize that having more and more and more markers would uh, allow us to do a lot more work, but that we couldn't do it on our own because it's very laborious undertaking for a single small lab like mine with not a lot of funding. Because we weren't doing biomedical research. If you do biomedical research, you can get a lot of government funding. If you're doing agricultural research, you usually you don't. Yeah, yeah. So, so tell us, um, you're, you're you're best known for this amazing discovery of, of Zinfandel. You know the the the, the origins of, of of Zinfandel, the mystery, the great mystery. How did you end up in Croatia? It took you 13 years on the trail of this grape variety, didn't it, to find this map? Well, sort of, yeah. It, it, it went in, in spurts. So in the early 90s, I, I had long been curious about Zinfandel because Zinfandel was thought by some to be California's own grape, right? Mm-hmm. What a nice idea. And, mm-hmm. and everybody wanted to capitalize on that because we've actually got something of our own, right? 
But any grape expert who, who looked at the vine, it, it was obviously a European grape. You, you can tell just by the appearance. We have a lot of Native American grape varieties, but they don't look anything like Phytus vinifera, the, the European grape. And so it obviously came from Europe. Uh, it was obvious that it was probably not from France, Italy, Germany, Spain, Portugal, because we've had so many European experts traipsing through our vineyards here that somebody would have recognized it. So that means it must have come from a, an area less familiar to West, the Western wine world, so perhaps from further east. Uh, we already knew that Primitivo in southern Italy was uh, probably the same as Zinfandel. Uh, we had the rudimentary DNA tests that we had around 1991 um, did allow us to confirm that Zinfandel and Primitivo certainly could be the same variety because their rudimentary profile matched. But the Italians were the first to say, but it's not Italian. We know that it, it didn't arrive in Italy until probably the, the middle of the 18th century. And if you look at a map, it, you know, Italy's surrounded by water, right? And on the eastern coast of Italy, there's the Adriatic Sea, and it's not very wide. And ship traffic has been moving across back and forth for millennia. And so a really logical place to look for how the grape got to Italy was to look, look on the other side of the Adriatic. There was already and you were right, a, yeah. <laughs> and you were right. There was already a grape uh, on the other side of the Adriatic in present-day Croatia called Plavac Mali, hmm. which was suspected to be at least related to Zinfandel. And so that was, of course, the very first thing that we looked at was to compare Plavac Mali to Zinfandel. So, so we compared Zinfandel to Plavac Mali, and they were not the same, but they seemed to be related. So that gave us, that, that it was encouraging. It suggested to us that even though Plavitz Mali is not the same as Zinfandel, it does indicate that we might be on the right track and maybe that's the part of the world that we need to look in. Mm. And so a few years went past. Uh, I didn't know anybody in, uh, in Croatia and we had plenty of other things to be working on. And I did try to make contact with a few people in Croatia, but I didn't have the right connections and they weren't the right people. Sometimes they were agricultural people, but they weren't geneticists. And I really needed to talk to a geneticist over there who knew about the grapes. And then in 1997, I got a, a, a wonderful email from Professor Ivan Pejic at the University of Zagreb. And he was requesting my assistance because by then the work that we had been doing with uh, Western European grapes had become fairly well known in the grape genetics community. He understood that what we've been doing might well be very useful to them in Croatia because they had a lot of grapes that they thought were indigenous to Croatia, but they really weren't certain. And it's possible that some of them were the same as, as other grapes from further west in Europe. And they wanted to understand what was truly theirs so that they could focus their efforts on preserving those. And would I help? Uh, he, because he thought that our methods would be very useful. And I said, well, yes, I'm perfectly willing to help. If you will help me find Zinfandel, because I think it comes from Croatia. 
And he, of course, said, you know, what the hell is Zinfandel? Because that's a name that is not used in Croatia. It's, it, it, it's, a, it's a California name. He didn't know the name. I told him that Zinfandel was a, an important grape in California and that we had uh, every reason to think that it might have come from Croatia. And he said, well, yes, certainly that uh, he would help me do that. And so in, uh, in the spring of 1998, that's when we embarked upon our collaborative project, along with another Croatian scientist at the University of Zagreb named Eddie Malatic. And so uh, I traveled there in May of 1998. Uh, we started looking around vineyards. We were still thinking that it might be Plavitz Mali and that maybe there was some clonal diversity in Plavitz Mali and that the one we had originally looked at maybe was not the right one. So we collected a lot of samples from a lot of Croatian vineyards. None of them were the same as Zinfandel. They were all the same as each other, though, so there wasn't any clonal diversity. And so we, we began a long, long project, and I was there several times, but mostly it was Yvonne and Eddie going out into vineyards, mostly along the Dalmatian coast, because that is the main uh, red wine region of Croatia. And they would then send samples to me. Uh, we, we developed a technique for drying the leaves to, to chemically preserve the DNA. They would send me samples. They would arrive by Federal Express. We would analyze them in my laboratory. And there was a lot of uh, 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 the boy crying wolf kinds of situations where Yvonne would send me an email and say, Here's a, there's a package on the way. Here's the tracking number. And sample number 25, we're sure, is Infandel because it looks just like it. And so we'd, we'd get this package of samples. We'd analyze them as quickly as we could. And no, you know, it, it wasn't. And eventually you got a match, right? Which turned out to be something called Tribidrag. Is that right? Is that how you pronounce well, it? that didn't happen for several years. That took three years of analyzing samples. And finally, uh, we got yet another message from Yvonne saying, this one, number 29, I'm sure this is it. And I'm going, yeah, yeah, sure, Yvonne. You know, we've heard that before. But it did turn out to be it. You got it. And it was going by the name. It was growing in a vineyard on the coast in, uh, near the town of Kastela. And it was going by the name Surlianic Kastelansky, which my husband says is a great sobriety test. If you can say it, you're sober. <laughs> So, uh, which simply means, Sirlian at Kastelansky simply means the red from Castella. So right, it was yeah. a very generic name. Yeah. But then uh, we later found another sample growing a little further inland that matched also, and it was going by a local name of Pribidrag. Hmm. And then Yvonne and Eddie in a natural history museum in the city of Split found some preserved grapevine leaf samples in an herbarium there. And they found one of them that was labeled Tribidrag. Uh -huh. And the preserved dried leaf looked just like Zinfandel. Yeah. But it, it was a leaf that had been sitting in a museum for 100 years. It was uh -huh. dead. So okay. we couldn't analyze the DNA. Yeah. And that's what then took the time. And then you finally got it, yeah. Because they found that in 2001. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until 2011 that Ivan and Eddie found a research group in Croatia that had experience with archaeological samples, and they could get uh, good it. DNA yeah. out of out of dead yeah. stuff. So that's not, we've got to move on to other stuff because it's such a fascinating okay. story. But there's loads of stuff I want to ask you. Okay. I, I just wondered how much DNA fingerprinting has overturned a lot of our previously held assumptions about where Vitis vinifera came from and how vines have moved around the world. A bit like the Zinfandel story. Are there other examples of that? There are there are some examples, mostly. 
Well, for example, Cabernet Sauvignon, for a long time, people had speculated that it came from Albania mm. or, uh, yeah, I think it was Albania. And of course, now we know. But by finding the parents of a grape, uh, it, it gives you a real insight into its history because if the two parents of a grape have, have been associated with France for a very long time, then there's a very good chance that that grape originated in France. Hmm. So if Cabernet Sauvignon had come from Albania, then the chances are its parent varieties could probably be found in Albania, but not yeah. in France. And so so the, the mythology about uh, the speculation about the origin of Cabernet Sauvignon, the origin of Chardonnay, the origin of Syrah, those were all clarified, and I, I don't think it was really earth-shattering, but, you know, with grape, because grape has such cultural significance to us, there are so many stories associated with it. It's so intertwined with history and culture that people like to tell stories about where grapes come from, mm -hmm. and they've often not had the benefit of any facts. It's They're just stories. And so what our work did was really just tie these grapes to factual information and probably shattered a lot of people's stories, especially the origin of Syrah, which people had long thought was, was in Persia uh, because of the city of Shiraz, which is yeah. a synonym for Syrah. And so I think a lot of people were disappointed when we confirmed that Syrah actually was born in France. Yeah. And, and were you surprised by how important Pinot Noir was as, as a grape variety? You know, it's a sort of super parent or a progenitor to so many varieties, isn't it? Yes. Uh, well, not just Pinot, but the, the other parent in the pair, which is Gouet Blanc. Mm. And that was really surprising uh, when we found, when we looked at a lot of grape varieties associated with northeastern France, we found 16 of them that had the same pair of parents, Pinot. And we presume it's Pinot Noir, but they, since all the Pinots are just clonal color variants, they all have the same DNA profile. So Pinot and then Gouet Blanc. And Gouet Blanc is known to have originated in uh, Central Europe, uh, where it still goes by the name Hoynish Weiss. Mm. But it, uh, it, it had been introduced into France probably in the 3rd century AD, or, or no, maybe earlier, maybe earlier. And it's thought that maybe... Uh, one of the Roman emperors had brought it because it was uh, from his homeland. Mm. Anyway, that was surprising to find those same two parents, but it, it actually it was surprising to find those same two parents, but it's actually quite consistent with what we know about vi the viticultural situation at that time, where all the vineyards on the slopes were owned by the nobility or the church, and that was where Pinot was grown. But all the people who farmed, who did all the work on those vineyards, they lived in the flatland and they grew Gouet. So there was a lot of Gouet Blanc growing on the flatlands and a lot of Pinot growing on the slopes. And they were in pretty close proximity and great pollen can travel. And so in retrospect, it's it's not surprising and it fits rather neatly into how, the historic. How, how interesting. Listen, I'd, I'd like to spend time talking about, about your own project, but I'm not sure if we're going to have time. So I might just ask you another thing I really want to get into, which is the whole genetically modified vines. We talked about it. You said that initially you were involved a little bit with, with that, but the gene editing technology has moved on a lot, hasn't it, since you retired in... 2003 to reclaim your sanity and work with your own amazing vineyard up on Mount Vida. Um, do, do, you know, I think it's interesting. I've read that you think there are no concerns about their safety. Do you think they could be a partial answer to the challenges presented by climate change that we've seen in the States and other places? 
Well, yes, uh, and, and you mentioned the, the term gene editing, which is different than genetic engineering. And gene editing is much more specific, much more specific, and really uh, doesn't present the same sorts of concerns that the old genetic engineering, you know, from 30, 40 years ago did. Because gene editing, you're working with a specific gene that already resides. It's already part of your target organism. And you're simply modifying a very small part of that. So you're not going to have, you know, blue tomatoes or issues like that. Um, so I, I think that gene editing does have a lot of promise. Uh, I don't know necessarily about climate change because climate change is a vague term that means a lot of different things in different parts of the world. Uh, for example, here in California, we have the very cold Pacific Ocean right off our coast. And so uh, the coastal part of California may not actually get a whole lot warmer as long as the Pacific Ocean stays fairly cool. Whereas places that are in the interior of continents may get a lot warmer. So I think it's going. every region is going to have to address its own climate change issues. Uh, I think often that's going to mean um, more extremes, um, more heat waves, more cold, more big, more droughts, more uh, hurricanes, and, and yes, and, wa and wildfires as well. And wildfires, of course, yeah, yeah because that comes along with with droughts mm. and also lightning. Uh, some of our fires here in California have been started by dry lightning, and that's mm. that's a big concern. So certainly gene editing, I think, uh, it, it's simply a, a much more highly controllable tool in the genetics toolbox. Yeah. Just tell us quickly about your own, your own wine. I mean, just uh, just a minute or so, because I mean, you, you've got this incredible vineyard. You're about yeah. to retire, aren't you? And, and a, a mutual friend of ours, Aaron Pott, is taking over the vineyard, isn't he? But you, you've made this amazing Syrah. What else have you grown up there? I mean, it's been a slightly bit of a Carol Meredith greatest hits isn't it, in terms of grape varieties. Uh, in addition to the Syrah, which is about half our production, uh, we also grow Mondus, which is... Uh, a close relative of Syrah, and that's why we planted it, because we wondered how it would perform side by side with Syrah, because in France, of course, they're never grown side by side. And we also have uh, a little bit of Zinfandel, uh, which, yes. because of my own experience, <laughs> I just felt I had to have some. And of course, we call the wine Tribadrag. Uh, we had to get special permission to put Tribadrag on the label, because that's not an approved varietal name in the United States. And then we also have a little bit of Malbec because we had tasted some other Malbecs from our neighbors around us, and we were really impressed with uh, Mount Veter Malbec. So that's what we grow. Uh, our site up here is fairly cool. Uh, we get a lot of, of uh, marine air coming through the Golden Gate in, in San Francisco Bay. So we're a rather uh, cool climate, which I think is what makes our Syrah taste so good. We have a very complex Syrah. We don't have big fruity wines. Most of our wines are quite complex and uh they they taste more like the place than they do like I, the grape. i think that's true but, and you didn't want to plant cabernet sauvignon despite the fact no. you were involved in identifying the parents right well we didn't you know when you're in napa who needs another napa <laughs> cabernet no, i'm applauding you <laughs> there's some very very good cabs but we don't need another one and napa has the potential to grow so many different varieties and we thought maybe we would try to demonstrate that yeah the, the deal with our friend Aaron is that Steve and I have now been on this property for uh, over 36 years. Uh, we are trying to figure out what our exit strategy is. 
Uh, we do not want to leave this place. This place is our everything. Never want to leave uh, un until we physically have to or until we're dead and they can carry us out. Now, we don't even want them to carry us out feet first. I think I'll just want to be scattered in the woods. <laughs> but we wanted to find a way to stay on this property, but we were tired of working. We've both been working for many, many decades. We have other things we want to do. We... Uh, we fielded a couple of offers to buy the place from us, and th and those would have allowed us to continue to live on the property. But when we actually thought hard about those prospects, we began to realize, yes, we could live here, but we would be somebody else's tenant. Mm. And that didn't sit well with us. We wanted to continue to control the property. And so we offered our longtime friend, Aaron, who has been a dear friend for Oh, 30, over 30 years. I mean, I, I just posted on, you might have seen it on Facebook. I just posted an old photograph of Aaron and Steve and me from 1991, where we're all drinking and having a wonderful time at our place. So we go way, way back. And so we offered Aaron the opportunity to use our fruit uh, if he would assume responsibility for farming the vineyard. So no money changes hands. And that, I think, is what has really thrown people, because if, if you're in Napa, there's always so much money being tossed mm -hmm. around. And here we were giving up our, our very, very good fruit to somebody for no money at all. But we knew Aaron would do a wonderful job with it, and it would take the burden of farming it, the responsibility off us. Uh, he loves Mount Veter. He has his own Mount Veter vineyard. And so he jumped at the opportunity. And so starting in 2022, uh, he's making the wine, and we're just sitting back and watching him do it. We still do have one unreleased vintage of our own, though. We'll release our 2021 wine uh, in a few months. I look forward to trying it. Just telling us what you're doing with your semi-retirement. Um, you're still skiing? Are you still playing bridge? Are you still doing sculpture? Are you just reading? Are you still a, a bit an academic at heart? Not skiing, not playing bridge. I've forgotten how. I'm not retired yet because Steve and I are still selling wine and will be actively selling wine for a couple of years. And that is my job is running the business. I'm the one that deals with all the horrible rules and regulations in the United States with regard to shipping wine across state lines. And I fill out all the reports. I do all the social media. I, I do all the selling, all the finances. And so I'll be busy at that for a couple of more years. Steve's job has changed quite a bit. He's now more focused on fire defense than anything else. Yeah. Because if we want to keep living here, we have to stop it from burning down. So my main activity, my main leisure activity is photography. Ah. I, I love photography. I started out in the 70s when I was in graduate school doing a lot of nature photography, macro close-up stuff. Now I don't do that so much anymore. Now I do a lot of landscape photography, wildlife photography. And uh, and I spent quite a bit of time at it, and I tell Steve that it's marketing, because I post <laughs> I, I post all the photos on Instagram and Facebook. And so what I, are you on Instagram? What are you? You you has the name of the winery, isn't it? Legere Meredith, yeah. It's at Legere Meredith. That's right. Yeah. Pretty easy to find. L A G I E R Meredith. Okay, yeah, so and I, I post there regularly, and I just posted a hummingbird photo this morning of a. A hummingbird doing a back gainer. He looks like he's he's up in the air, upside down. They're they're remarkable, uh, remarkable birds. Okay, so people should check out your Facebook page and check out your Instagram page, Carol. It's been amazing talking to you. I could talk to you for ten hours. Actually, we've only just you know touched the surface of some of this stuff, and I'd like to talk to you a bit more about your own wines. But it's been amazing to see you. So great to talk to you, and I love your Syrah. It's just one of my favourite Syrahs in California. It's brilliant. 
Thank you, Tom. Next time, maybe a glass of wine together, huh? That sounds perfect. I'll see you soon. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. What a career Carol's had, and I'm glad we found a bit of time at the end to discuss her superb Lagier Meredith wines. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Miles Beale, the Chief Executive of the Wine and Spirit Trade Association. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at timatkin, and on Instagram, at timatkinmw. See you next week.